Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Mark chapter 6, beginning at the first verse. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offence at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honour. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hand on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went round teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two, and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town, and if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Janet, thank you very much indeed. Well, it was uh, very good um, hearing um, how Andy became a Christian. You'll be pleased to know that uh, when we interviewed him, we made sure that he was before we appointed him to the job. Uh, But still very good to uh, hear that. uh, And uh, it's very good to have Andy and Jess uh, with us uh, as part of the church family and Andy on the team here. I can still remember when I uh, first became a Christian, I can still remember the excitement of it all. I'd uh, been thinking for some time about life's big questions. Uh, What happens when you die? What is life all about? Questions like that. And I was very aware that I wasn't the sort of person that I always to be. I knew I'd made mistakes. I knew that I'd hurt other people. And so when I found in Jesus I could be forgiven and be sure of eternal life, I was over the moon. Suddenly life made sense. I felt alive. It was as if I'd just discovered the most important message in the entire universe. And I thought everybody would want to know it too. I became a Christian on a Friday night, and so on Monday morning, I started telling my colleagues at work all about it, and I really believed that everybody would want to know. Why would you not want to know this news? I don't need to tell you that my new mission in life was not greeted with universal approval. Indeed, as I think back to those first conversations, those first couple of weeks of becoming a Christian, I can't remember anyone embracing it, or me, at all. Now, you might call me naive, But I couldn't work out why people wouldn't want to grab hold of this momentous news for themselves. In many ways, I still wonder why everybody doesn't want to become a Christian. Since then, 
uh, getting on for 35 years later. I know I don't look old enough, but I am. I, I still think it's the best news in the world. I still believe that the gospel is the only message that everyone on the planet needs to know. But having, of course, had many conversations, and many of you here will have done the same, having had many conversations with many people, I'm not surprised anymore when people tell me they don't want anything to do with Jesus Christ. But I still ask myself, why? Why do people reject Jesus when this is such good news? And the answer to that question, at least in part, this is not the whole answer, but at least in part, is here at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. Look again with me at verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. Now, if you've been here these last weeks, you'll know that, that this follows a chapter, a chapter and a half of Jesus doing the most extraordinary things. Remember at the end of chapter four, he calmed a raging sea. A whirlwind had whipped up a storm and uh, the disciples in the boat thought they were going to die and Jesus stilled the storm instantly just by speaking to the wind and the waves. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. At the beginning of chapter five, Jesus delivered a demon-possessed man, a man who had terrorized the community, a man who'd lived in a graveyard in the place of death, even being kept captive by the dark forces of evil in this world. Didn't, couldn't get free of it. And Jesus comes and frees him instantly. Then we saw a woman who was healed, healed of a, of a condition that had baffled all the doctors that she had approached for 12 years. Nobody able to do anything. Jesus cured her instantly. And then last week, what an amazing thing. Jesus walks into the bedroom of a little girl, a little girl who had died. And he gently took her by the hand and said, get up. And the girl got up. She was alive. He raised the dead. In chapters four and five then, Mark's gospel, we have seen Jesus do the most extraordinary things things that no one else can do. And he did those things, things that are out of this world, to demonstrate that he is from out of this world. And more than that, in each situation, Jesus delivered people from death. The the, the disciples on the boat on the lake thought they were going to drown. The man um, who was demon-possessed was living in the place of death. He was a, a walking dead man. The little girl who had actually died is raised. And so, in doing those things, Jesus demonstrated that he is the one whom we all need. Because death is the greatest problem we all face, and death is the problem we have no answer to. And the thing as we turn to chapter 6 is this. The people here knew that Jesus had done these things. Look what they say at the end of verse 2. He even does miracles. Jesus' ability to perform powerful death-defying miracles was not in question. So following all those remarkable moments, he went to his hometown and verse two, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed at his teaching. (laughs) There was something different about the way Jesus taught. It was compelling, riveting. You'd hang on every word. They'd never heard anything like it. He didn't teach like a politician, you know, playing with words to leave himself room to wriggle out of promises he could never keep. 
He didn't teach like some university lecturers, not the ones in the congregation here, of course, but some full of clever concepts that have very little significance beyond the corridors of academia. And he didn't teach like a tired preacher, trotting out trite, predictable platitudes, making 20 minutes feel like 20 hours, torturing the congregation, taking them towards a slow and agonizing end by boring them to death and giving them another excuse to put another egg in the box. Andy. Now, as Jesus taught, his words were captivating. They were, end of verse 2, amazed at his words and his teaching. This was like nothing they'd ever heard before. And so they said, verse 2, where does this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? You see where we're at in verse 2. They were amazed by Jesus' teaching. They knew he was able to perform miracles. They heard about it. That was not in question. And so I would have expected the next verse to read, so many of them began to follow Jesus that day. But no. This is the great surprise in the passage. Despite all they'd heard and all they knew and all they knew that Jesus could do, rather than say, I want to follow Jesus, they asked, verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And you see it there? And they took offense at him. You see what's going on here? Jesus, we're told in verse one, was back in his hometown. They'd seen him grow up. They knew his family. Verse three, isn't this Mary's boy? You know, Mary who lives down the high street. This is Jesus, eldest brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And uh, his sisters, they often hang out with the Cohen girls, don't they? Yeah, I remember him growing up around here. He used to play football with the lad from number 27 on the street outside our house. Join the family firm. Do you remember? Verse three, isn't he the carpenter? His dad, Joseph, made him his apprentice. Oh yeah, the two of them designed and installed outfitted wardrobes in the bedroom. Made a good job of them, actually. We know who he is. And so, end of verse three, they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, verse four, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. See what's going on here? The people from Jesus' hometown had made their mind up about who Jesus was. They'd seen him grow up. He's just an ordinary boy. They knew the family he was raised in. And so they couldn't believe that he was any different to any of them. In fact, when they began to think about it, they started to get irritated at any suggestion that he was something more than a local lad. You can imagine them saying to each other, who does he think he is? Goes away for a few years, walks back into our synagogue with his fancy pants teaching. Who does he think he is? And suddenly the amazement of his teaching and the incontrovertible evidence of his miracles is dismissed and he's become an offense to them. I see... I encounter this kind of thing when I talk to some people about Jesus, people who've in some measure, some small measure, thought about Jesus already and have made their minds up about him. Let me give you some examples. Think of people who've had some engagement with Christianity in the past, people who might have a church-going background, but who've never really read the Bible for themselves. Initially, they're amazed by the things that they read in the Bible. They are amazed by his teaching and by his miracles. But as we then discuss what Jesus is claiming for himself, they don't like it. 
They really don't care for the thought that Jesus claimed to be none other than God himself, that the miracles he performed could only be done by God himself. They don't like the thought because they've already made their minds up about who they think Jesus is. They're ready to acknowledge he's a great teacher. I imagine uh, the sort of person that's in my mind has been born and bred in Britain, raised in a clean, living, respectable family and been given fine values of common decency and good manners. They may have gone to Sunday school when they were younger. And all their lives they've carried with them a basic understanding of right and wrong and of a belief that they should try to live a good moral life. They might even say they try to live by the Ten Commandments and the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. You see, for them, because they've been brought up with this thought, Jesus is someone who teaches a good moral framework by which we should live, but that's it. So they pay their taxes and they're part of the neighbourhood watch scheme and they've never been in trouble with the police. And as I say that, I am not knocking that. I'd much prefer that people do that than the alternative. But my point is this, many in this nation, because they've in some measure been brought up with some sort of Christianity and because they think Christianity is about living a good life and that's what Jesus basically teaches, just be good, They can't accept when they're confronted with a Jesus of the Bible who does other things. That he's more than that. Yeah, amazed by what they read at first, but then that amazement turns to offence when their long-held beliefs about Jesus and about life are challenged. That's one group where this seems to happen. Uh, Let me tell you another. Uh, When I talk to Muslims, this seems to happen. Now, I don't have many engagement with uh, people uh, who are Muslims, but I have had some over the years. Uh, you will know the Quran teaches that Jesus was a prophet. Now, if you look at verse 4, clearly Jesus says he's a prophet. But the Quran teaches that he was no more than a prophet. So thinking Muslims will say they respect Jesus. But you don't have to be a scholar in Islamic studies to know that Muslims treat Muhammad and his words as far more important than Jesus and his words. And they certainly don't believe that Jesus is God. And so when I talk to Muslims and show them that, they, that Jesus claimed to be God by the things that he said and the things that he did, they can't accept it. And not least of all, because if Jesus is God, then he is not just a prophet And he has more authority than Muhammad and therefore the things that Jesus said trump the things that Muhammad said every time. Now talk to a Muslim friend carefully, respectfully, but honestly like that and they will take offence because they've already made their minds up about who Jesus is. He's just a prophet, no more. Now that, you see, is why many people reject Jesus. It's not because they've looked into the evidence because they've already decided what they think about Jesus. Their worldview is fixed. And so then even if you show them the clear evidence, they won't change. Now something that's helped me to see this clearly, and indeed something that I've used again and again and again, and uh, for that reason I want to demonstrate it to you, is something that C.S. Lewis uh, describes. Um, It's called the trilemma, if some of you will have come across it. C.S. Lewis demonstrates that Jesus is either Lord of all or he is a liar or he is a lunatic, but there's no middle ground. This is how the argument uh, works. Um, 
Firstly, Lewis says, Jesus claimed to be God. Now, logic says that he either is or he isn't. In other words, it's either a false claim or it's a true claim. If Jesus isn't God, then he either knew he wasn't God or he didn't know. So if Jesus claimed to be God, but he wasn't God, he, did, you know, you see, he claimed to be God, but it's not true, but he didn't know that it wasn't true, then you have to conclude that he was a, in Lewis's word, a lunatic. Uh, look, this is the point. Sadly, there are many people around today who think they're people they're not. Some people today think they're Napoleon Bonaparte or Julius Caesar. And when people think that, we should feel sorry for them and then try to get them the help they need. If someone claims to be God and they are not, then we should feel sorry for them and try and get them the help they need. But we certainly wouldn't teach, treat them as a great teacher or a prophet. We treat them as somebody seriously deluded. So if Jesus claimed to be God, but it's a false claim, but he didn't know, in other words, he really did believe he was God, then you have to call him a lunatic, deluded. Second, if Jesus claimed to be God, but it wasn't true, it's a false claim, and he knew it wasn't true all along, then you have to call him a liar and a deceiver. And I, for one, don't want to follow a liar or embrace his teaching, and I certainly don't want to give my life to him. So that leaves only one third option. Jesus claimed to be God, and he was God. Then we must call him Lord. Lord, liar, lunatic. And see, once we've seen that Jesus claimed to be God, those are the only three logical conclusions to who Jesus is. And here's the crucial thing. It means that we cannot just say that Jesus is just a prophet or just a good teacher. Because a prophet would not claim to be God if that's all they were. And therefore, they're either Lord, liar or lunatic. Listen to the way C.S. Lewis concludes this, this line of thinking. He first did a series of radio broadcasts back in 1942, which were then turned into a book called Mere Christianity in 1952. And I'm quoting from that. C.S. Lewis says this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And then this is how Lewis concludes. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. See, there's the logic. And so we cannot agree with Islam, which insists that Jesus is a prophet, but, more than, but, but nothing more than a prophet. And we cannot simply leave Jesus as a great, a great teacher, as many Brits seem to want to do. 
That is not a consistent position to hold. It's not an intellectually honest position. What is intellectually honest is you look at the evidence and you conclude that Jesus is mad or bad, but not leave him as a prophet or a good teacher. But despite all that, that that is a position that some people would rather hold on to because they've already decided what Jesus is about and who they think he is, just as we see here in Mark chapter 6. And I wonder if some of it is because acknowledging Jesus as Lord of all creation has implications for our lives and how we respond to him. And if we don't want to live as he demands, then despite the clear evidence of his amazing teaching and astonishing miracles, we find ourselves offended by the evidence and we reject him because that's the, what we want to do. Now that's what happened here as Jesus spoke in his hometown. And this morning as we see the people of Jesus' hometown response, the challenge is, have we got a preconceived idea of who Jesus is? Is our view of the world, the the universe and everything so fixed that we will not engage with the possibility that Jesus is God? Do we hold a view of Jesus that is not shaped by the evidence in the historical documents that we have here in the Bible? And why are we holding the view we have if it's not consistent with the Bible? Is it because we know that to admit that Jesus is God will mean that we have to follow him and obey him and change our lives which we don't actually want to do? I suppose what I'm appealing for is an intellectual honesty here. Now, I know that many people uh, in front of me already do believe Jesus is God. And uh, I'm not teaching you anything you didn't know, but I hopefully am showing you the sorts of way you might engage with your friends and the sort of uh, thing you could easily learn to do on a piece of paper to help them to see the logic of Jesus' claim and where it leaves him. Finally this morning, if, peop- if, if, if like the people from Jesus' town, we have rejected the clear evidence because we've already made up our minds about Jesus, then there are some devastating consequences that follow. Here we see Jesus will not give us more evidence to persuade us, more evidence than is already here. Look with me at verses five and six as we draw to a close. Jesus could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them and he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now I think this is one of the most, uh, these are one of the most difficult verses in, in Mark's gospel um, and possibly the Bible but certainly in Mark's gospel and consequently these verses are highly misunderstood, often misquoted and sadly misused to the detriment of many people. Let me tell you what these verses cannot mean. They cannot be teaching us that the faith of individuals somehow limits God's ability to act. That is nonsense theologically and pastorally it is incredibly hurtful. You see, theologically, to say that God can't act if we don't have faith is hopeless because it limits God, which instantly means that God is not God. If he can't do what he wants to do because we don't believe, he's not God anymore. And of course, it's pastorally extremely hurtful. I've heard people say, if you had more faith, you'd be healed. That is such a damaging and cruel comment, leaving people thinking that their condition could be cured if only they had enough faith. That is cruel. 
Now, what I've just done now, you see, with this verse is basically I've just taken my systematic theology, my, my systematic framework, and I've said um, the rest of the Bible teaches this, so that can't be what these verses are saying. So what do they mean? Well, we have to put them in context. This comes in a section that we've been looking at over the last few weeks where there's been a contrast between faith and fear, between trust and unbelief. I won't go over that again, but if you've been here the last week, you've seen that. In this section, Mark has been providing us with very substantial evidence so that we can know who Jesus is and therefore reasonably trust him with our lives. We've seen these great things that he did. That he has the ability to overcome death. It is reasonable to trust him. It's a sensible thing to do. That's what Mark's been doing. So now as he arrives in his hometown, Jesus meets people who have all the evidence in front of them. Do you remember? You see verses two and three are very important here. They know about the miracles, end of verse two. They have actually heard the amazing teaching, verse two. Yet they reject the clear evidence because they have their own preconceived ideas about Jesus. So here's the thing when we come to verses five and six. For Jesus to do any more miracles will not engender faith. That's what this whole section has been about. I'll show you these miracles so that you can put your trust in me. What more does he need to do? There's nothing more he can do to engender faith. He's already performed the most remarkable death-defying miracles known to man. So he could not do many miracles there. He could not do anything more to persuade these people. But more than that, this is a warning against culpable unbelief. Jesus chooses not to do any miracles because they've already made up their minds about him. He could not do many miracles and remain consistent with himself. For miracles are given to point people to life in the kingdom of God and these people have already rejected that. And so verse six, he was amazed at their lack of faith. (laughs) It's very interesting. There is virtually, I think there's only two other occasions in the Bible where Jesus is amazed quite difficult to amaze God he knows everything but they but he was amazed at their lack of faith because they had all the evidence they needed they they knew about the miracles they'd heard his teaching and uh, look we are like them like them we know of Jesus' miracles we've been looking at uh, uh, three or four of them in these last weeks and we've been, uh, we've been hearing Jesus' teaching here in the Bible. It is amazing. We have enough evidence to believe, to put our faith, our trust in Jesus. More than that, over these last weeks, we've seen how sensible it is to trust Jesus. Not easy, but sensible, because he is the only one who has a solution to our great problem of death. Why would we not want to trust him? So Jesus is amazed that people don't trust him, just as I was when I first became a Christian. And I hope we'll all continue to find it amazing that people don't want to become Christians. And here's the warning. If we won't believe what is right before our eyes in these pages, then we cannot expect anything else to come from Jesus to convince us. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Lord and God, that you don't just, as it's often said, expect us to take a leap of faith.
a leap in the dark. We thank you quite the opposite. You've given us the light of your words to see how sensible it is to trust Jesus. We thank you that we have all the evidence we need here in these historical documents. We thank you for the remarkable, the astonishing miracles that Jesus performed to say, who do you think I am? And we thank you for his teaching, which has been embraced down through the years, is so incredible. And so with the miracles and the teaching before us, we pray that you'd help each one of us and to be those who put our trust in him. And not least of all, because he and he alone has the problem of death solved. And so help us to trust him and help us to help others to do the same. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.